0: As we continue our series on understanding the scripture, I want to look in this session at a very important principle that may be a little bit surprising to you as we begin. And that is the principle that we ought to read the Bible existentially. Now, as soon as I use that term, existential, in any of its forms, I realize that. Uh, Uh, I'm going to provoke some reactions among folks who hear the word. In many circles, the word existential is just simply a word that is without meaning. People hear it and don't have any real understanding of what it refers to. In fact, as a teacher of philosophy, I'm asked this question perhaps more often than anything else, and that is, what is existentialism? And my favorite reply to that question is, well, existentialism is simply the philosophy of existence. And then I see the frowns turn to scowls as uh, people are certainly not all satisfied by definition like that. Well, existentialism as a philosophy is a very complex thing. And when I talk about reading the Bible existentially, I am not using the word in the philosophical sense. I do not mean that we ought to apply the philosophical method that is married to existentialism to the Bible, as many are doing. But what I mean by it is simply this, that we ought to read the Bible as people who are personally, passionately, and intimately involved with what we are reading. There is a link, of course, to existentialism at this point. I think of the philosopher Kierkegaard, the 19th century uh, thinker who was so important for the shaping of later philosophy in the field of existentialism, who looked at mankind and said that there are different stages along life's way, or what he called stadia along life's way. And as he explained that to his readers, he made a significant difference between what he would call the aesthetic stage and the existential stage of life. The aesthetic stage of life is defined as that, li- that that dimension of life whereby we stand on the fringes of human activity and we remain always and forever spectators. We're never personally involved. And what Kierkegaard was calling us to was that particularly as Christians, we are called to be passionately involved in the affairs of life. We cannot afford as Christians to stand back on the fringes and merely be observers. Now, it's that principle that I want to translate now to the reading of the scriptures. We are not to come to the Bible and simply remain aloof from its message, trying to reduce it to an objective uh, bit of information that we are to dissect and analyze and record in our memory banks. But this book is a book that is filled with light. It is addressing us in the midst of the stream of our own lives. And if it is going to speak to us, we need to step into its skin to read these stories in a certain sense as if they were written especially for us. I remember Adele Rogers St. John wrote a novel a few years ago in which the hero of the story was a man who, who was puzzled about what the Christian faith was all about, and he had a, a casual acquaintanceship with it. He knew people who were Christian, but he had never been serious about investigating the content of the Christian faith. And he was like many people who felt, well, religion is something that we do by way of institutions and by church attendance, but I'm not going to get too personally involved in it. But somebody explained to the hero of the story that if if Christianity was going to be meaningful in this man's life, he had to see its personal ramifications. So by way of experiment, the man did was he went back to his office. He was a successful businessman and he instructed his secretary to type up each of the epistles of the New Testament as if they were personal letters that were written just for this mean. And she even went so far as to address these letters, not as Paul to the Philippians or Paul to the Thessalonians or Paul to the church at Rome, but rather it was Paul to Hank so-and-so. And then they were put in an envelope and they were sent to this man's home, to his home mailbox. And he would go out every week and there would be a letter from the Apostle Paul addressed to him. And what that little gain did was that it forced him to read the scriptures personally and existentially. The Bible is filled with drama. And to read it existentially means to to try to bridge that gap between ourselves in the first century and the, and the culture in which the Bible was written and try to project ourselves into the life situation of the scriptures so that we can feel it as well as read it with our eyes there's some license that goes on here that preachers use all the time it involves the task of reading between the lines again it was kierkegaard who in his little book fear and trembling did this with a very poignant passage from the old testament we know that the 22nd chapter of genesis for example records one of the most uh, moving stories in all of Old Testament history. It's the story of God calling Abraham and telling him to take his son, the child of promise, Isaac, and to take him into a farm mountain. And there Abraham was asked by God to deliver Isaac to that mountain and to offer him on an altar of sacrifice to kill his own son. And of course, the narrative of that event comes very abruptly, very concisely and succinctly to us in the Old Testament where God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take now my son, thine only son, the son whom you lovest, Isaac, and take him to this mountain where I will show you. And so on goes the instruction. And Kierkegaard was reading that on one occasion and he himself had suffered greatly in his soul from the pangs of a broken engagement in fact so much of kierkegaard's writings his poetry and drama focuses on that release of the anguish of his soul that he experienced from that lost love and so when he reads this story in the old testament of god asking abraham to take the most precious thing in his life and give it away Kierkegaard felt it in his own soul, and he began to muse on it, and he tried to think what was going on in Abraham's mind. And the text says simply, as it continues, and Abraham rose early in the morning. And when Kierkegaard got to that portion of the text, he stopped and he said, wait a minute. Why did Abraham rise early in the morning? The Bible doesn't tell us. In order to know it, we have to read between the lines. We have to try to project what it would be like to be in that life situation. And so we began to muse on it. And he thought, well, maybe it's because Abraham was such a man of so vital a faith, so disciplined, so rock hard in his commitment to God that no matter whatever, God asked him to do, Abraham reported for duty early. God, you want me to sacrifice my son on the altar, so let it be said, so let it be done. I'll set the alarm clock for 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'll get up, and I'll report for duty, and I'll take my son and do exactly what you said. I won't miss a beat. I won't skip a step. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Well, that's one way we can understand the text, and because God sets that fourth us. But then he said, wait a minute, Abraham was a man. Maybe he was the friend of God. Maybe he's the prototype of all faithful men. Maybe he had faith such as to move mountains. But even Christ himself sweat. Beads of perspiration that were of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was greater than Abraham. And Kierkegaard looks at the idea. He says, don't tell me that Abraham got up early in the morning out of a uh, simplistic sense of obedience and duty to God. And God said, no, if that were I, and God had come to me and said, kill my own son. I think the reason I would have woken up early in the morning is because I know I would have never been able to fall asleep. As soon as my eyelids grew heavy, The pain of that decision would intrude into my mind, and I would begin to think, how could this be God? God, uh, you know, for me to, to sacrifice my own son, what kind of a God is that? If he is simply testing me, maybe at the last second, God will deliver me, but then maybe he won't. And so the anguish of a soul wrestling with this trust in God, the anguish of a soul hanging to faith by his fingernails was tormenting Abraham, and maybe, said Kierkegaard, that's why he got up early in the morning. Well, we don't know. As I said, the Bible doesn't tell us it's silent, and of course it can be a very dangerous and irresponsible thing for us to take too much license and intrude too much into the text and we don't want to do that. I've already given a lesson on the dangers of subjectivism in interpretation. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about feeling what the people in the scriptures are feeling and supplying for ourselves the passion that comes from real life. Because the biblical characters are not fictional, they are not fairy tale characters, they are real people real flesh, real blood. And we need to be reminded of even as the scriptures itself remind us from time to time, as St. James does in his epistles, when he exhorts the people of God to pray, he reminds them of the effectiveness of the prayers of Elijah. And he said, remember that Elijah was a man like unto you. His passions were just like your passions, His heartaches were just like your heart. But it's so easy for us to so romanticize the heroes and the personages of Scripture that we forget that they were just as we are. One of my favorite illustrations of the way we must try to recreate the situation comes in the 10th chapter of the book of of Leviticus, where we have there the record of the death of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. We read the text as follows Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron took either of them, his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereupon. And they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and debarred them. And they died before the Lord. Now listen to that two verses and we get the action. We don't get much explanation as to why they did what they did. But in two verses Nadab and Abihu's act is recorded for us and their deaths are recorded for us. Very, very sketchy by way of outline, really not filling in the details in their fullness. But it's the the kind of a uh, hitting the main point that you would find in the front page article of a newspaper. Then Moses said unto Aaron, this is it that the Lord spoke saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near me. And before all the people, I will be glorified and Aaron held his peace. There's not a word in there about Aaron's reaction to the slaughter of his sons, except what is implied. Now, what do you think it was like for Aaron? Do you think Aaron after he hears that his sons have been slain at the altar casually strolled over to the tent of Moses and said, Moses, I have a theological question for you. Perhaps you can help. I'm just not quite sure why it is that God would take the lives of my two sons. Perhaps you can enlighten me. You think that's how it happened? You know, that's not how it happened. When Aaron saw the bodies of his sons in front of that altar, he was tearing his hair out. He goes to Moses tent. He's screaming man, Moses. What's going on here? What kind of a God would do this? I've served him faithfully day and night. Whatever he's asked me to do, I've done. I raised my own sons. I prepare them for the priesthood. One small little transgression and God destroys them. Why Moses? Moses says to his dear friend, Aaron, Aaron, don't you remember that God made it perfectly clear And he was serious. He said, I will be treated as being holy by those who approach me and by those who minister in my name. Don't you see, Aaron? God will not tolerate sacrilege at the altar, even if it comes from the hands of your sons. God won't tolerate it. And Aaron bowed his head. And we just said that the scripture says Aaron held his peace. He held his peace. All right. But it took every ounce of strength and energy that he possessed to hold his peace. Because his peace was screaming. To let go. Into warfare. Against God. This is a moment of passion. And I suggest that as you read the scriptures in this existential way, that you look for the drama that's there. I remember as a seminary student, we had to go through speech exercises in our homiletics class that we thought at the time were somewhat silly. We had to uh, memorize little ditties and poems like now Clear, pure, heart, bright, one by one like two hailstones. Short words fall from my lips, fast as the, uh, the first of a shower. Now a twofold comedy column. I am tropey, advancing along. Now and sprightly, you're springling this dance, the elastic that and the musical cadence is on. And we had to sing songs like that and speak like that so that we could learn how to control our tongue. And you can see I didn't do very well in that particular exercise, where we had to, to try other forms of communicating drama in our speaking and like one poem we had to say was all oh, our organs. With its many and wonderful voices. Sing on the soft lute of love. Play with the high squealer, blow the loud trumpet of war. And when we used to do that in class, everybody would crack up and start laughing as we were trying to be dramatic. But I remember one text that our professor gave to us and made us read in front of the class where we were reading from the Old Testament and the passage was very simple. It read and in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans slain. And he said, "Now, gentlemen, when you read that. You do it like this. And in that night. Was Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans. Slame. we laughed when he did that but he was trying to teach us a lesson and the lesson was very simple gentlemen don't ever put the people to sleep by boring them with information that is really powerful mm-hmm. look for the drama because the bible is filled with drama And when the person comes to me and said, I break down in my Bible study because I get bored. I say, how can you get bored? The blood is flowing in the street. The sexual impulses of men and women burn like fire throughout the scriptures. Anger, hatred, hostility. Again, I think of Kierkegaard who said about his own age in the 19th century in the church of Europe at that time. He said, my complaint is not that this age is wicked. My complaint is that it's paltry, it's dull, it lacks life, there's no alarm, there's no verb, there's no excitement, he said, and so I am driven from time to time, when I'm bored by my contemporary surroundings, I'm driven back to the Old Testament, where people are real, and they breathe life, they lie, they kill. They steal, they cheat, they commit adultery in a word. They are men. They are women. So that's what I mean. If we get in touch with the life blood of scripture as we read. If we practice looking for the drama, there's no way that we can be bored. Because I'm convinced, dear friends, that this book is the most dramatic book that has ever been written. I remember back in the 40s, there was a radio program borrowed from the best-selling book by Fulton Owlsworth entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told. Hollywood has understood without any great desire to communicate the truths of Christianity. That if you want to tell a story that has passion and drama, follow from the themes of the scripture. Because the themes of the scriptures lend themselves to this kind of drama. I can remember one last example that I'll give you, I think, of reading in later on in the book of Leviticus, where uh, we read in the 13th chapter the following instructions. Listen to this as uh, Leviticus 13 and see how interesting scripture is. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man shall have in the skin of his flesh a rising, a scab or a bright spot, and it be in the skin of his flesh like the plague of leprosy, then it shall be brought unto Aaron the priest, or one of his sons of the priest. And the priest shall look on the plague in the skin of the flesh, and when the hair in the plague is turned white, and the plague and in sight be deeper than the skin of his flesh. It is the plague of leprosy. And the priest shall look upon him and pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot be white in the skin of his flesh, and in sight be not deeper than the skin and the hair thereof, be not turned white. Then the priest shall shut him up and hath the plague seventh day. And the priest shall look upon him the seventh day. And behold, if the plague in his sight be at of his day, and the plague spread not, how are you doing? You still with me? <laughs> it goes on. And The priest shall look again on the seventh day. And if the plague be somewhat dark, and the plague spread not in the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean; it's but a scab. Then he shall wash his clothes and be skinny. But if the scab spread much abroad in the skin after the day, you read that, it goes on, ladies and gentlemen, to three chapters. And I know the first 15 times I read those chapters in Leviticus, they gave me an excedrin headache. I couldn't wait to get past all these pedantic points of a description of various illnesses and disease that, that was like reading somebody's book on anatomy. And I thought that's that's got to be the most boring stuff. How could God, the Holy Spirit, waste his time? How could God, His Holy, the Holy Spirit, waste his time inspiring stuff like that? Then one day I was reading. And I'd just been talking to a friend. Who had gone to their doctor. And the doctor had found some strange shadowy marks that were showing up in an x-ray. The doctor wasn't sure what was causing these images on the x-ray plate. Was it a harmless mass of scar tissue? A benign tumor? Or did it show the beginnings of a virulent cancer? so my friend then went to the hospital to have a biopsy performed and then the tissue that was taken in the biopsy was sent to the lab to go through the various procedures of pathology that are involved in modern medicine and you realize what my friend went through while waiting for the verdict that would come back from the lab harmless benign tissue or a fatal cancer that would snuff out their life. That's what these people were going through when they went to the priest. And they, when they saw a scratch on their skin, when they saw a scab form on their skin, in those days, they didn't just assume that it was a mosquito bite. It could very possibly be the first clue of the advent of the most dreadful, dreadful disease that could afflict them the disease of leprosy. Even go from the Old Testament to the New and think of the drama that surrounds Jesus' ministry to the leper. How the leper comes down the street and sees Jesus and he cries out in a loud voice, Jesus, have mercy upon me. And that wretched man is begging on the street and Jesus walks over and breaks all the laws that are set forth here about contamination and contact with somebody involved with the scourge of leprosy. Jesus comes over and touches him. What does that say to you about your Lord? Who will stoop down from his throne on heaven and place his hand? on the most wretched flesh of mankind to, to bring healing to a human life. How would we understand it? If we didn't first take the time to see the drama, even in Leviticus, even in the dietary laws, as we read the dietary laws and we say, Oh, what could be more boring? And whether we're supposed to eat things that chew with their to their cods or how many hooves or clothes they have in their hooves and all of that business and then we see men like Daniel Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who are taken away into captivity in a process where the Babylonians take not everybody from Israel into exile but they take the cream of the crop the best scholars, the best musicians, the best artists, the best businessmen. And they try to integrate them into the life of the culture of Babylon. But the Jews don't want to give up their heritage. They want to remain Jews. They don't want to be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. And so the Jews refuse to break their laws of culture, the laws of diet that God had prescribed from heaven itself. They would not bow down to the images of the emperor. And for that, Daniel goes to the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego end up in a flaming, fiery furnace. We wouldn't understand the drama if we didn't understand the crucial role that the diet provisions have for the one who is chosen of God to be special. It's all there. It's there in passion. It's there in drama. But for us to get it and have it touch us where we live, we have to see the flesh, the humanity of the people in their existence and touch them. Let their existence touch our existence. That's what I mean by an existential reading. session in our series on knowing scripture principles of understanding and interpreting the bible we're we're going to continue our examination of basic principles that we need to know to be responsible interpreters of the bible in our last session we looked at the importance of reading the bible in an existential way trying to feel the passion and the life that is involved there in the biblical text, but the handling of historical narratives is a very, very tricky business indeed. And so the rule that we set forth for today is this, that the historical narrative must be interpreted by the didactic. Let me say it again. The historical narrative must be interpreted by the didactic we've already spent time defining how we recognize historical narrative literature. And if you recall back when we talked about the cardinal rule of biblical interpretation, the analogy of faith that Holy Scripture is its own interpreter, and that we ought never arbitrarily to set one portion of Scripture against another. It's particularly true when we deal with narratives, because the temptation. When we read narratives is to draw theological and doctrinal material from those narratives that we ought not to draw. In fact, sometimes we do it in such a way that we bring the narrative into conflict with the didactic portions of scripture. Some of you, I'm sure, are sitting there saying, what is didactic literature? Didactic literature comes from the word, uh, the Greek verb didoskein, or didoskelos, which means teacher, or to teach. So didactic literature is that genre of literature whose primary intent is to teach. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we see that we can divide somewhat loosely here, the new testament between the gospels and the epistles and the gospels are primarily narratives and the epistles are primarily didactic they're designed to teach and to instruct now we have to be very careful here because obviously there is a great deal of teaching content in the gospels and certainly there is some narrative material to be found in the Epistles. so it's not an absolute distinction between gospel and epistle, but in terms of emphasis, in terms of accent, in, in, in general terms, in simple terms, the purpose of the gospel is to tell us what happened. It's to tell us the story. The purpose of the epistle is to explain to us the meaning of the story. So another way that we could uh, delineate the difference between gospel and epistle is this that the gospel records the event. The epistle interprets the meaning of the event. Let's take an example, perhaps the most important example in biblical history, the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ involves a historical event where a man was convicted of a crime against the Roman government and he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. And the story tells us and describes the the environment, the location, the characters that were involved, the method of death that was employed, and even the words of Jesus that he spoke from the cross. And not only do we get the information and the details that describe the event as it took place, but we even get in the gospel record some people's interpretation of the meaning of the event. For example, Caiaphas said, it is expedient for the nation that this man be put to death. And so from his perspective, we learn that the execution of Jesus was done out of political expediency to get the heat of the Romans off the Jewish Sanhedrin. And let's quiet down the people we will sacrifice this itinerant preacher. We see Pilate's statement where he cleanses his hands and he says, I find no fault in this man. He has an interpretation of his own political expedient. Where we hear the testimony of the centurion at the foot of the cross who said surely this man was the son of God And what was going on here was it simply an event of a poor misguided Jewish rabble rouser who was put to death through some political chicanery that took place in Palestine 2000 years ago was this one a deluded Charlatan, guilty of treason against both the synagogue and the state? Or was this God incarnate going to the cross to die a cosmic death of atonement that would have radical consequences for the eternal destiny of thousands and millions of people? Indeed, for the whole world. What is the meaning of the cross? In the very first lecture of this, I told the danger of the modern version of painting, where the artist says, I'll paint the picture, you interpret it, and so that any kind of interpretation goes. And we warned against the danger of subjectivism in that. Well, there have been many attempts to look at the cross and reinterpret the cross according to 20th century categories. But what we have in the New Testament is not merely the record of the event of the cross, but also we have the record of the interpretation of the event in the New Testament. That's the primary function of the epistle. But what I want to remind you of this, if you were a newspaper reporter standing at the foot of the cross on Golgotha, and you watch the drama of the crucifixion of this Jew unfolding before your eyes, I don't think that it would be immediately apparent to your naked eye that the death of this man was the most important death in world history of any man, that this man at that moment was carrying by imputation, the sins of the world. If you looked at Jesus on the cross, you saw a man in the Lord cross sweating and bleeding and dying, and you would see skin and flesh and bones and hair and toenails, but you wouldn't see this package of human sin wrapped up and placed upon his body. It was invisible. So how would you know that the death was an atoning death, were it not for divine revelation? And so some say this, well, I believe in Jesus, but it's Paul that gives me trouble. I'll listen to the gospels, but not those narrow-minded epistles. But there is an interconnection between gospel and epistle in the New Testament. You don't know anything about Jesus except what you learn from the gospel writers and when you set Jesus against Paul what you do is to simply set one apostle against another apostle but their task was to tell us what happened and what it means and so we must be careful lest we draw inferences from those narratives that are on a collision course with what is taught by inspired interpretation of the event Elsewhere. Give me an example of how we can draw conclusions from the narratives that are very, very tempting to draw, but yet are dangerous. I think, for example, again of the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, which I mentioned in our last, last lecture. When Kierkegaard was wrestling with the drama of why Abraham got up early in the morning, well, we know that Abraham did get up early in the morning, and he made the three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and he did everything that God had instructed him to do, and he took his son, and he wrapped him in ropes, and he put them there on the altar, and Abraham took out his knife, and he raised it above his son's chest, and just as he's ready to plunge that dagger into the heart of his own son, suddenly an angel's voice called out, saying, Abraham, Abraham! Lay not thy hand upon thy son, for now I know that you love me, that you obey me. Now the very tempting conclusion that we may want to draw from that passage is what? That God was up in heaven, pacing up and down the floor, walking back and forth before the throne of the heaven, calling for bulletins from the archangels every five minutes. What's the progress of Abraham? Is he still moving towards Mount Moriah? And the angel would come in and say, yes, he's now 17 miles from Mount Moriah and closing rapidly. And another bulletin would come five minutes later. Yes. And God would say, is he staggering? Does he seem to be losing his confidence? And you can see God there wringing his hands and wiping his, brow, wondering whether or not Abraham, is going to be faithful you know better than that everything that the scriptures tells us in the didactic portions of scripture is that God knows the end from the beginning that God is omniscient he knew very well what Abraham was going to do before Abraham did it and yet when the angel comes and speaks in behalf of God he says Abraham Abraham don't touch your son because now I know as if he didn't know beforehand then we have to say what is the point of the story is the point of that historical narrative is the port- a point of that drama there to teach us about the character of God's omniscient heart? The point of the narrative is to reveal to us the nature of real trusting faith in a sovereign God. To tell us of the tests of Abraham, not of the test of God. God didn't have to pay, pass a test on whether or not God had faith in Abraham. The question was whether or not Abraham had faith in God. And so we have to be careful that we don't draw conclusions from narrative that would set us in opposition to the rest of the Bible. What does the Mormon Church is built on the on the premise that God has a physical body. Because the Bible says in the narrative of creation that God created man and woman in his own image. And the gratuitous leap that comes there is that, all oh, are created in their own image. Then God must have a body because Adam and Eve have a body. Disregarding everything else that scripture says about the spirit nature of God. And we touched on that lightly when we dealt with the problem of anthropomorphic language. That God reveals himself in human terms. He's described to look like a man, to behave like a man. And so we must be careful that we don't take those human characteristics and set them in concrete as if they exhaustively describe the character of God, because elsewhere scripture, even though it uses human characteristics, says, God is not a man. He's like a man, but he is not a man. Well, again, we have to be careful with how we interpret biblical history. And we come to the New Testament, and we see other problems linked to the historical narratives. The New Testament, for example, gives us a record not only of what Jesus said, but of what Jesus did. How Jesus behaved, we get a portrait of Jesus painted before. Him. You remember Sheldon's classic devotional book, In His Steps. And we've been taught again and again as a guiding principle for Christian conduct, for Christian ethics, that when we are confronted with a situation and we're not quite sure what the right thing to do is, we should ask ourselves this question, what would Jesus do in this situation? Then we go back to the New Testament and we find and see if there are any parallel situations and see exactly what Jesus did. Now, there's There is value in a question like what would Jesus do in this situation because we know that Jesus' behavior was impeccable, that Jesus' behavior was sinless. We couldn't ask for a better model or a better guide or a better norm for Christian behavior than the life of Jesus himself. Except that even that creates its own breed of special problems. Why? Well, I think the answer is obvious. Because no matter what else I am, I may be a Christian, but I am not Jesus. And there were certain things that Jesus did because he had a mission to perform that is not my mission. That had Jesus not done those things that he was called to do, he would have been disobedient to God. But if I imitated Jesus, I would be disobedient to God. Well, how could that be? Well, let's take this example. I look at the church and sometimes I'm annoyed and upset by the church because I don't see that the church is being as pure and as proper as it ought to be. Do I have any right as an individual Christian to pick up a whip and walk into the church and drive the money changers out in a fit of anger and righteous indignation? No, Jesus did. But see, Jesus is the Lord of the church. I'm not the Lord of the church. And so I cannot practice everything that Jesus did. Well, we look in the New Testament, we read that Jesus was circumcised for religious reasons. Does that mean that I should become circumcised for religious reasons? Not only should I not become circumcised for religious reasons, but Paul warns us in Galatians that we better not be circumcised for religious reasons because if we get circumcised, not for for medical reasons but for religious reasons what are we doing we're binding ourselves once again under the law of the old covenant from which we've been redeemed and we may forget that when jesus lived his life of perfect obedience he was living it under the demands and conditions of the mosaic covenant of the old testament and that the new covenant didn't start until jesus inaugurates it in the upper room the night before he died And so if we imitate and copy Jesus in everything that we do, we could end up in a kind of legalism that would, in fact, deny the whole purpose of his ministry. Well, that never happens, you say. Yes, it does, I say. And I see an abuse of application of Jesus' behavior frequently. Here's one that's more subtle, one that may be more difficult to grab a hold of, but I think it's important. We have great discussion indeed controversy among christians today on how we ought to observe the sabbath day and that's a tough question it's a very difficult question because you know you can't read the bible without seeing that that sabbath observation is very very important to both the jew in the old testament and the christian in the new testament in a certain sense. and so some have said well let's see what did jesus do on the sabbath day And we see that Jesus performed works of mercy, works of healing, works of visitation on the Sabbath day. And then we set down a law for the church that it is the duty for the Christian to do works of mercy and visitation on the Sabbath day. Now I ask you, think carefully here, is that a legitimate inference to establish a law for Christians? You see what happened in the first century, in Jesus' own time. The rabbis prohibited works of mercy on the Sabbath day, as a violation of the prohibitions against labor that were part of the old covenant. And Jesus went about doing good on the Sabbath day, healing on the Sabbath day, and the rabbis got all exercised at the bottom. They said, "What's he doing? He's having that man carry his bed on the Sabbath day." And then he asked Jesus asked the question is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day and Jesus confounds his critics by doing good on the Sabbath day now the inference that we draw from that properly is this that it is certainly allowable it's certainly a virtuous thing to do works of mercy and visitation on the Sabbath day because if it were not allowable If it were sinful to do works of mercy on the Sabbath day, then Jesus would indeed have been sinning by doing them on the Sabbath day. But the fact that he did them reveals to us that it is not sinful at all to do that particular form of activity on the Sabbath day. But do you see the little line between May and must? It's one thing to say that you are allowed to do works of mercy on the Sabbath day. It's another thing to say you are commanded to do works of mercy on the Sabbath day. It's a critical difference. Jesus nowhere in the scriptures commands his people to do works of mercy on the Sabbath day. He certainly shows that it's a good thing to do by his example, but he doesn't command it. And his very example of doing something shows that it's permissible, but doesn't necessarily show that it's obligatory. It's a fine line and we have to be careful. Now, what about the imitation, not only of Jesus, but of other saints in the Bible? There is where we have to be very, very careful. Because though we know Jesus never sinned, we can't make the same statement about David or about Abraham. And you say, wait a minute, Abraham had a wife and a concubine. David had, you know, hundreds of wives and concubines. You know, Solomon had a thousand and these people were held up as as saints. Yes, and David committed adultery. We are not to imitate that. The Bible paints for us the portraits of the saints, warts and all. Yes, we should imitate their heroic and virtuous action, but we ought not to imitate their sinful actions. And just because David did something or even just because Paul did something does not in itself make it necessarily commendable. Although, here's where it gets tricky, it might. When we see that these men did something that was praiseworthy by God, then of course their example is a model for us. But when we see that something they did is condemned by God, then their example cannot be a positive model for us. Now, looking at narratives of what the first century church did Or what early Christians did can be very helpful but also dangerous. I want to know how the very first group of Christians behaved before the corruption of civilization and society came came in and disturbed and blemished the pristine purity of the early church. But on the one hand, even though there was a degree of purity present in the early church that is not present in our day and age, that there was a degree of zeal evident in the church in its earliest days, there was also a sense in which the church was very immature read paul's letters to the corinthians paul is writing to an immature congregation to whom he must plead and exhort the necessity of growing up into maturity and we read the book of acts and we read this history and we read for example in the very early chapters of, of acts that the New Testament community at a particular point in time held all things in common and that statement is just mentioned and then virtually nothing more is said about it and we read throughout the rest of the scriptures if you can read between the lines of the rest of the scriptures you're going to see that it's obvious that the holding of possessions communally was not an established perpetual order for the Christian community but for a particular moment in time it was said But the early church did it, and some have taken from that a mandate for communism. They've drawn more from the narrative than the narrative requires. Take the whole controversial matter of the role and the functions and the significance of tongues and the speaking of tongues in the Christian life. Read the narratives of the book of Acts. And you will read that not only does Pentecost happen in Jerusalem, but there's a sense in which a few more Pentecost happens. The Spirit falls again on uh, on the uh, uh, Samaritans, and the Spirit falls at Cornelius' household, on the Godfears, and the Spirit falls uh, among the Gentiles. And we look at that and we say, oh, that must mean that the Spirit uh, and and the baptism of the Holy Spirit must come after conversion to Christ. Because it certainly did in the book of Acts. Or well, the significance of that is that some believers, as in the case of the Samaritans, have faith, but they don't have the baptism of the Spirit. And it certainly was true there, that there was a disjunction between regeneration and faith and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then you go over to the didactic portions of the Scripture, and we read that the same Spirit has baptized all members of the body of Christ. How is it that we have a doctrine floating around that some Christians are baptized in the spirit and some are not when the didactic portions of the New Testament seem to indicate that there is a universality of participation in the baptism of the Holy Spirit in those who are truly Christian. All Christians are gifted by the spirit is the teaching of the didactic portions of scripture. So how do we square that with the narrative? Well, if we look at those narratives. We ask ourselves, what did the disciples themselves see as the significance of the falling of the Spirit at Cornelius' household, or among the Samaritan Christians, or among the Gentile Christians in Ephesus? Their interpretation of the significance, I might say, and lay down the gauntlet, I'll put the challenge out, it's the exact opposite of the interpretation given to it by Neo Pentecostal thinkers. We look at the day of Pentecost, every believer who was there received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every believer at Cornelius' house would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every believer among the disciples of John believed and, and received the Holy Spirit. Every one of those people who were believers present received it. It wasn't that some believers got it and some didn't. In fact, if you look at it, you see the whole book of Acts follows the Great Commission. The opening chapters take place in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then to the othermost parts of the earth. And the biggest question the early church had to face was how do these people who are non-Jewish fit into the body of Christ? Where does the Samaritan fit? Where does the God-fearer fit? Where does the Gentile fit? In the day of Pentecost, only Jews were baptized. And then God pours his spirit out on the Samaritans and on the Ephesian Christians and on the God-fearers of the Samaritans. Every group that was suspect and where they were to fit into the New, New Testament community church were given their Pentecost, and Peter and John go down to see what's going on there. And they come back and they said, this is that which happened to us. How can we refuse them for access into our community when God has put the imprimatur of his spirit upon them? In other words, the significance the apostles derived from the narrative events was that all of these people are to be included as full members in the body of Christ. The very opposite conclusion, which is drawn from 20th century neo-Pentecostal theologians who have built their doctrines on inferences drawn from narratives, without that careful, careful guarding, tempering influence of interpreting the narratives in accordance with way they are interpreted by the didactic literature of the New Testament, and so. We must be careful to read the Bible holistically. We ought not to draw interpretations from the text that are against interpretation that the Bible elsewhere draws itself. The Bible interprets the Bible. The Holy Spirit is his own interpreter. In our next session, we'll look at some more very practical principles of how to handle the scripture.